Hey, Uprightians, it's Matt Shu from Upright Health, and welcome back to the Upright Health Podcast. In today's episode, we are talking about American healthcare and the crazy costs that we as Americans pay for drugs, for medical services, and what have you. I'm talking today with an expert in this topic, Dr. David Belk. He is an internal medicine physician, and he has spent the better part of seven years diving deep into the costs of services and drugs in America. He talks about the arbitrariness of the prices that we pay and what games are being played by insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies to get everybody to pay more. He also shares in this episode things that you can do to save yourself literally thousands of dollars if and when you need some sort of medical service or if it comes to the point where you need some sort of pharmaceutical intervention, which from my perspective, hopefully you can avoid. If you ever think you're going to need medical attention of any kind, this episode is worth a listen because otherwise you may end up paying way more than you need to. I found a lot of this discussion really enlightening. His research is so in-depth, it's almost mind-boggling. But we hopefully boiled it all down for you in a way that is digestible. We talk about some specific examples with specific drugs and specific services. Don't take those discussions as an endorsement necessarily of any of those things, but really look at the bigger picture and what all these specific examples tell you about the way the entire system works. I know you'll get a lot from this. Here we go. So Dr. Belk, uh, I want to thank you for taking the time to join us today on the podcast. And um, for those who don't know, Dr. Belk has been a researcher who's just been just discovering so much about the true cost of healthcare in the United States. And, you know, I guess the corruption, we could call it, and the... Uh, the Collusion. Collusion. Fraud. Fraud. These are all strong words, Dr. Belk. Can you tell us how you came to feel so strongly about all this? Well, it probably started many, many years ago. Even when I was a resident, I noticed this huge differential between how much is billed for a medical service and how much was actually paid. The, the, the point that I remember that probably hits me the most, and I can't remember if I was a medical student or a resident when I was at Los Angeles County Hospital, and uh, part of my duty was to like escort patients between the hospital and this uh, MRI center that was located on campus, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, sitting there waiting for the scan to happen or my neurology rotation, I struck up a con- conversation with the uh, director of the center. It was a very small center; they just did MRIs, and thinking that, you know, all of these MRIs were incredibly expensive because you always hear, you know, they're billing you know, thousands of dollars for them. Even then, this was in the, like the 1990s. Mm-hmm. I asked, well, you know, how much do you get paid for these things? And he said, well, it's about $290. Mm-hmm. 
you know, it's 350 if we use contrast. And I said, <laughs> but wait, I thought these things cost thousands of dollars. Right. And he said, nah, most insurance companies stopped paying that, you know, more than a decade ago. The price has really gone down. Then, you know, later on, I would still see bills for many thousands of dollars and thinking, you know, what's wrong here? And every time I would ask about it, you know, the conversation would always drift to, you know, something about funny money, how, you know, nobody pays this, this is all ignored. But then you sometimes see people getting hit with these bills and you think, well, that's not so funny. Because, you know, having a charge like this and having a contract, you know, that says you owe, you know, this much money means that people can be held to those accounts sometimes, which made me wonder how often does this really happen? You know, how endemic is this problem and how insidious is it? And the more I researched it, I really started formally researching it about seven and a half years ago. The more I researched it, the more I found out that uh, it's not at all funny. It's it's a real problem that even the insured often gets stuck with huge overbloated bills. And when I mean overbloated, you know, here in California, average bill from a hospital for any medical service is about four times the expected payment on any of those bills. And so when you have a 300% markup on average, you have a lot of room for grift and fraud. So just to make that clear for for people who are listening, that basically means if the hospital expects to get paid $1,000, then what they'll send is a bill for $4,000. Is that correct? On average, but there is a phenomenal variance in the payments and the billing charges and how much the billing charges exceed, you know, any reasonable cost assessment. In other words, and I'll give you a a quick example of how completely insane this is. Okay. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I have two bills, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Both are women who get their insurance from work, right? Both women have United Healthcare as their medical insurance, right? Both women got hysterectomies done at Alta Bates Hospital about a year apart. One of them got it in February 2016, the other August 2017. Not a huge difference in time. Mm-hmm. Okay, you with me? Yep. So, two women, different employers, but both have United Healthcare, same insurance provider, got a similar procedure done at the same hospital. Okay. Now, here's the difference. One woman, it was an outpatient procedure. She was home at noon the very same day, Mm -hmm. right? The other woman, slightly more complicated, three-day inpatient procedure, Mm -hmm. right? Both hysterectomies, one a little more complicated than the other. Mm -hmm. As you might expect, okay, the woman who got the hysterectomy as an inpatient, the hospital billed a lot more than for the outpatient. The hospital, Elta Bates Hospital, billed over $91,000. $91,000 for the person who was in the hospital for three days, billed only $41,000 for the woman who went home the same day. But here's okay. where it gets feared. Okay. The woman who went home the same day of her hysterectomy 
United Healthcare agreed to a payment of $29,422, 71% of what was billed. Okay. The woman who was hospitalized for three days, United Healthcare only agreed to less than half that. Okay. $14,600. Okay. So $14,600 was the total amount paid for everything for the woman who was hospitalized for, you know, three days, which is about 15% of the billed charge. 70% of the billed charge was paid by United Healthcare for the woman for who the was Right. Explain to me how that makes sense. Yeah, that doesn't make sense. So what's going on there? Why, why the crazy disparity there? What's happening? Uh, smoke and mirrors. If nobody has any way, uh, e e this is what people don't understand. Billing charges not only have very little to do with the cost of services or expected payments, payments have very little to do with billing charges or the actual medical services provided. And this makes it nearly impossible to know in advance or even after the fact how much a medical service is really worth. And if nobody knows how much a medical service is worth, it's nearly impossible to understand or to figure out when you're being overcharged. If there's that much confusion in the billing and payment system, it's impossible to know when you're being ripped off. And that's what's happening consistently, persistently, all the time. People are getting ripped off and they have no ability because, you know, you get a $50,000 bill from a hospital and your insurance company gives you a 50% discount. Is that a good deal? You don't know. So I, I remember no idea. I remember seeing some examples you had shared on uh, the cost of medication mm -hmm. and how it was actually cheaper to not use your insurance to get medica some certain medications, right? The majority of medications, yeah. And, and this is probably another one of the most persistent myths in healthcare, one of the most poisonous myths. Probably the most poisonous myth in our healthcare system is the myth that all prescription drugs are incredibly expensive. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's poisonous because it's not true most of the time. 87% of prescriptions filled last year were for generic medications, and the vast majority of me generic medications cost pennies a pill. Pennies. And I'm serious, less than a dollar, less than 30 cents for most of them. All mm -hmm. right. Okay. But assuming that all prescription drugs are expensive, and assuming that you absolutely need your insurance to buy them sets you up for getting ripped off most of the time. And I'll give you another really good example here. Please. So I, I, you know, I wrote a blog about this. I'm not sure if you read this particular blog, but this is a woman who is again, a patient of mine. You know, she even let me use her name in the blog mm -hmm. and I write her a prescription for a migraine medication, risotriptan, it's generic Maxalt, mm -hmm. right? It'd been generic for a couple of years. This was back in September, 2015. And it's generic and she uses it often enough. So, you know, I write a prescription for 40 pills. She takes it to the local Walgreens and, you know, about an hour after she leaves my office, I get a fax from Walgreens saying, Sorry, her insurance won't cover this medication. 
could you either authorize it or write a prescription for another medication? Well, she's been on this medication for years. <laughs> and one of the things she does is she asks them, okay, uh, if I pay cash, how much will that be? 40 generic pills. Walgreens tells her $1,489.99. Basically just under $1,500 for 40 generic pills. Okay. That's a lot of money. All right. So I play along. I go through the trouble of trying to author, of authorizing it for her. You know, I fill out the paperwork, say, please give her this medication. She really needs it. Blah, blah, blah. My receptionist does that. But anyway, so she goes back the next day after Blue Cross, her insurance says, all right, we'll authorize it. She can buy it. And she goes there and they say, OK, well, she can buy 10 pills, not 40. You know, we're not going to be too generous. And her copay, her copay, her out-of-pocket cost for those 10 pills, one sixty-seven ninety-four. She gets this in writing for me. It's on my blog, right? So 168 bucks for 10 pills, that's about $17 a pill, down from $37 a pill. Ah, Patricia says, forget about that. She takes her prescription, gets in her car, drives to Costco, and tells the pharmacy at Costco, I don't have insurance. I just want to pay cash for this. Costco sells her all 40 pills, 40 risotriptan, all you know, generic. The prescription itself spelled out generic. 40 risotriptan pills for $41.21 cash, a dollar three a pill. Okay. <laughs> How is that possible? Well, risotriptan only costs about a dollar a pill. You go to goodrx.com even now. Here, I'll look it up for you. GoodRx.com is an incredibly useful resource. Anybody who buys prescription drugs and doesn't check this is a complete fool because this is your best defense against being ripped off in the prescription drug market. But right now, I'm looking up GoodRx.com. 30 pills of generic risotriptan, 10 milligrams, is $32.52 at Safeway, $34.26 at Costco. Okay, it's a buck a pill. So, All right. Now, if you call up Walgreens and ask them how much 30 risotriptan pills cost, they will quote you a list price of $794 right now. You can try it. Hmm. Okay. But if you get their free coupon, they'll sell it to you for $181.77. If you get the free coupon for Safeway, they'll sell it to you for $32.52 or one-sixth the price because risotriptan only costs about a dollar a pill. And so they can sell it for just over that and still make a profit. So it, there's there's widespread uh, manipulation of prices in in medication in services. Are you aware? Or have you seen cases of this also with um, things like orthopedic surgeries uh, as well? Well, it, it, everybody bills well above the price they expected to be paid for very practical reason. It's nearly impossible to know in advance how much any insurance provider is going to pay you for any service you provide or even necessarily which services will be covered. Mm -hmm. They are incredibly opaque to the providers as to what their payment schedules are. All right. Mm -hmm. So you can get, you know, you can be contracted with maybe a dozen or so insurance providers and each insurance provider has, you know, a half a dozen or so in plans. And, you know, somebody comes in and hands you a card for Blue Cross and you hope that A, you're in their network and B, they cover what you're doing. But, you know, it's, it's very difficult to know in advance how much they'll cover. So what do you do? You peg your 
billing charges well above what anyone will pay and take what you can get. But this is a system that's so opaque and blind and convoluted that even the providers, especially at hospitals, never know what they're going to get in advance. So all they do is they, you know, heap a large number of obscenely high charges on their bill and, you know, in the end get a payment that usually is reasonably close to enough money, sometimes a lot more. And the problem is patients get completely caught up in this system because the insurance company deliberately overpays a lot of times for their own reason. People don't know that. I mean, that's another really poisonous myth is that insurance companies are always out to save money. First of all, it's not their money most of the time. And secondly, even when it is their money, it actually is to their advantage to overpay. So that's one of the emails that you recently sent out that just grabbed my attention um, because I've often wondered, you know, when you're looking at some specific medical procedures that have been shown to be not basically the same efficacy as placebo or not as effective as placebo, health insurance companies still pay for them. And it boggled my mind until I saw your email about this topic that insurance companies actually aren't incentivized in the United States to cut their costs. So can you go through that with medical loss ratios and kind of give the breakdown there? Okay. So basically insurance companies, health insurance companies love to show off how parsimonious they are, how they, you know, definitely keep themselves to a tight budget. And by doing so, in order to do so, they advertise what's called a medical loss ratio. Okay. They pretty much put out that in on average, they pay out in medical expenses a minimum of 80% of what they take in in premium revenue, giving them a 20% capped overhead. All right. Mm -hmm. And for certain plans, they have to have at least an 85% medical loss ratio. Okay. So by capping their overhead, that shows that the money you're paying in premiums doesn't go all to profits, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't go to, you know, unnecessary expenses. If your overhead is capped at 20%, well, then they must be trying to save money, mm -hmm. right? Right. Wrong. And here's what people don't understand. The medical loss ratio would work if costs themselves were somehow fixed to reality. But when you have a situation where the health insurance company can at will determine their own costs, in other words, pay whatever they want, you know, just like with that hysterectomy, right? They could pay, you know, more than twice as much for an outpatient hysterectomy as an inpatient hysterectomy. Payments are almost random. Then the health insurance company has the ability to manipulate their own expenses at will. And that gives them a phenomenal amount of power over the risk that they themselves are supposed to be managing. All right. So I, I like to use this example. Let's say you're having a company party. You know, you got about 40, 50 people at it and you all get start to get hungry and you want to send somebody out for lunch. Right. Mm -hmm. And you tell the person who's going to pick up all the food, you say, OK, we'll make it worth your while. Whatever you spend on our lunch, we'll give you 
of that amount to keep for yourself. <laughs> okay. Well, if he goes to McDonald's and gets everything off the dollar menu, he gets to keep about three, four bucks for himself. But what if he goes to the most expensive restaurant in town? If he has the choice to pick what price he pays for your lunch, guess what you'll all be eating for lunch that day? Filet mignon. <laughs> right, exactly. Now, the health insurance companies, you know, they take in a certain amount in premiums each year. And they pay out a certain amount in expenses, so they have to basically estimate how much their costs will be. So they can only up their costs, ratchet up their costs, you know, slowly and meticulously. All right. But they know how to do that because they have a tremendous amount of control over their costs to make sure that they always get sliver thin three to five percent profit margins overall. But it's very consistent. And if you do a little math, you'll figure out that three to five percent of a hundred billion dollars is a lot more than three to five percent of twenty billion dollars. If you can keep your revenue stream constantly increasing, you keep the amount of money that you pocket constantly increasing. And people just don't catch on because they see these razor thin percentages of profit margins and say, "Well, it must not be the insurance companies." Right. So this was a concept that was completely new to me uh, when when your email came across my inbox because you know when I think about um, clients that we've worked with who have been told that you need this surgery this surgery and you look up the data and the research on surgeries and it says like well this doesn't really do anything more than a non-conservative approach and it also costs you five to fifteen to even you know fifty thousand dollars to do this procedure um, in my mind, I always wondered why would an insurance company want to still pay for this if the, the data shows it's not really that helpful. And it sounds like there's really no financial incentive whatsoever for them to even care what the data it's says. It's hard to say. Most yeah. insurance companies have been reasonably good, to my knowledge, at unendorsing procedures that have been shown specifically not to help but mm. sometimes they just get behind the times you know usually they follow cms's example and cms on uh, you know with medicare is very conservative about what they do or don't endorse it's quite possible that there's political pressure to you know endorse procedures uh, you know there might have been a study that showed it had you know a five or ten percent advantage there was nothing else to offer and everyone you know th th this is done for certain cancer therapies you know they get these advocacy groups to endorse stuff that doesn't work all that well by you know either paying them a lot or you know taking advantage of people's desperation. So it's, mm. it, it's difficult to know For why something thing. might be approved, you know, from procedure to procedure without knowing a lot more details. But mm. in general, my impression has been that, you know, healthcare as it's administered has been reasonably conservative and evidence-based, though that evidence is not above being manipulated because, well, nothing's above being manipulated. You always have to be very, very careful. Usually, usually things like that, you know, come and go rather quickly. There's always people who are, you know, going to try to put one over on the system. And in the long run, they get caught, but in the short run, they pocket a lot of money. It's not, it's, it, it's what, what I'm saying is, is that in general, it's not so much that, you know, we're endorsing sham therapies. Mm -hmm. uh, we try not to, but it happens. Right. It's that, we're overcharging for effective therapies. Okay. I mean, you know, risotriptin works, but it's not worth $37 a pill. It's worth a dollar a pill. All right. And that's what it's sold for. 
and there's no reason for it to be sold for any more than that. I actually, well, I haven't checked, you know, Rizatriptan. Actually, I can just give it to you right now. The price, the price pharmacies pay for Rizatriptan. I'll just give that for you right now, uh, just to show you that you know they're not giving these pills away. I actually did a comparison of how much pharmacies pay for their medications versus how much GoodRx advertises the price and the average markup for the discounted price, those discounted prices that I tell you, is about 80%. In other words, they get an 80% profit on those incredibly discounted prices. And, you know, so this isn't, you know, charity. You buy a pill for three cents and you sell it for, you know, six cents, that's 100% markup, yeah. right? Not too shabby. You're not going to lose your shirt making that kind of money. No. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, let's see here. I'm just checking what's called the national average drug acquisition cost, and hopefully they, there it is, Rizotriptan. Wow. So I guess they are, well, they're not giving it away, but it's about a dollar to a pill is, oh, uh, is what they spent <laughs> as of September 19th. Oh, so now they're yeah. sort of comes only, out every Wednesday. They're so only getting a couple of cents. Two <laughs> oh, actually, no. I'm sorry. That was the oral disintegrating. My I, my mistake. It's uh, seventy seventy three cents a pill. Oh, okay. Right. So they pay seventy three cents a pill and they sell it for a dollar. All right. That's making a little money. Twenty five percent. Yeah. Yeah. Not bad. <laughs> a little more than that, actually. Uh, more than thirty percent, actually. So most pills that people take every day. Keep in mind, you know, a pill like, you know, migraine remedy, you're only going to take a few times a month. But most pills that you would take every day for, say, blood pressure, let's give a very commonly prescribed blood pressure pill, right? All right. So 20 milligram lisinopril. That's one of the most commonly prescribed. You can get 180 tablets, a six-month supply at Safeway for $12.50. And again, lisinopril costs two cents a pill. Okay, so twelve dollars and fifty cents for uh, you know a dollar eighty, well three dollars and sixty cents. That's about a three four hundred percent markup. But twelve dollars and fifty cents for a six month supply of your drug. That's less than the vast majority of copays for that medication. So the money is clearly being, or the prices are clearly being manipulated so somebody can make tons of money. So, you know, what, what, what's the big takeaway, do you think, in terms of the, the American medical system as it exists today? For the average person, you know, how, how can you approach the medical system and look at the medical system in a way that's... Well, anytime you have the ability to, you know, shop for prices, do so. And that's not always going to be the case. I mean, acute medical care, you can't like go from hospital to hospital if you're having a broken hip or a heart attack, mm -hmm. you know, and say, hey, how much will you charge me? That's ridiculous. Right. But, you know, if and sometimes it's not easy to check in advance. But, you know, if you do, ha if you are prescribed a medication, check the price, period. Okay, check the price on GoodRx. If it's a brand name medication, it's going to be insanely expensive. All right. And I'll give you an example. This is another thing that people don't understand. Let's say you get, most people have heard of Lipitor, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, Atorvastatin. And I love using this, this example, right? So you're prescribed Atorvastatin, which is generic Lipitor. 20 milligrams, which is a very standard dose, right? Okay, so the cash price at that is 
excuse me, sixteen dollars and eighty three cents at Ralph's, eighteen dollars and twelve cents at you know Safeway, and nineteen dollars at Costco. Less than twenty cents a pill, right? Okay. A hundred tablets of generic uh, Lipitor, atorvastatin, costs about twenty cents a pill. Less than twenty cents a pill. Seventeen cents a pill. All right. Now, let's say you wanted the brand name for that. All right. You didn't like generics. You wanted the brand name. How much do you think the cost of 100 brand name Lipitors are? Can we just multiply by a factor of 10? Is that going to get us in the ballpark? <laughs> Not really, no. Oh, man. Do we have to $1,412. So it's $14 a pill if it's brand name. It's 17 cents a pill if it's generic. That is your typical disparity between brand name and generic medications. Now, like I say, 87% of prescriptions filled in this country are for generic medications, meaning the vast majority of time you get a prescription, you fill it, it's going to be pennies a pill, not dollars. But there are still medications that have no generic version available because they're too new or they're biologics and there are very, very few you know, generics out there for biologics and they're all expensive as well. So if you're on insulin or if you have an asthma inhaler or you need like, you know, uh, Humira for rheumatoid arthritis or, some, or something like that, then, yeah, you're going to be paying incredible amounts of money. The disparity between brand name and generics are 100 to 1 on average. And so anytime you get stuck with one of those brand names because there's nothing else available, it's going to cost. But you really need to check that because if you're not checking the prices of the medications, most of the time your copay will be more than the medication is worth. So um, it, my impression um, of the medical system these days and, and just of instances where I've had to go to the hospital for things, um, I recently had a, a child with my wife um, about six months ago, so going through that whole billing process, um, doing research on different procedures and things and seeing also how money influences the conclusions of research. I I'm curious how you see all this profit motive, how all the pricing games affects you as a physician and affects your patients. You know, does it affect how you practice and how you choose your patients? Does it? Well, I don't choose my patients. My patients choose me. You know, they call up, they make an appointment, they show up for their appointment, and, uh, you know, I usually don't try to avoid them unless they're incredibly obnoxious. But for the most part, you know, that's the, I mean, I don't know if other doctors do that. I, I, I Most of the ones I work with appear to, they just, you know, take who comes. I mean, like, like in, the term, in terms of how your practice is set up, like, do you work within a hospital environment? Do you work with... Well, my office is, I, I, you know, I rent my, my office space from a hospital, but I don't have, I, I'm not, I'm not employed by a hospital or anything. I just happen to rent office space from them because they, you know, they're the cheapest rents around. <laughs> okay. Um, so uh, so has, I guess my profit motiv motivation is, uh, you know, there I like having low rent. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you got to maintain or maintain low. But no, in terms time. of in terms of you know uh, what I choose for my patient, I don't get paid extra for any choice that I make per se. So I off, always try to you know provide the care that I think is best. Mm -hmm. And uh, yes, 
evidence-based medicine works when the evidence isn't being manipulated, but of course there are always people who find ways to manipulate the science. I wrote actually a rather extensive bit on that in my uh, section on my website on the pharmaceutical industry, Mm -hmm. how the pharmaceutical industry tends to manipulate the results of studies to their own advantage because they're the ones paying for the studies, right? Right, right, yep. And when you pay for a study, you do your best to design that study to make your product look good. And, you know, you also hire all the people evaluating your studies. Well, the people you're hiring to evaluate your studies know how their bread is buttered. (laughs) And they don't, you know, necessarily overlook glaring flaws but they also know that their evaluation affects their future employment by this pharmaceutical company. Yeah, so there was actually and they a well to look closely at this product and see how well it works. And so since the vast majority of initial research on uh, new therapies are paid for by the people who made the new therapy, it's not surprising that, you know, they they figured out a few games to put the research in their favor. Yeah, so this, this is actually um, something that um, Catherine uh, Jacobson uh, Raymond, the author of a book on back pain that I interviewed a, a, few, a few weeks ago, um, talked about in her book in terms of medical devices for spinal surgeries and just, you know, just treatments for the, for back pain. Um, she brought this kind of um, collusion to my attention in her book. And I don't know if you've seen this Netflix documentary called The Bleeding Edge um, that recently came out where they, they talk about how exactly what you described um, is happening in the medical device industry. So it, the same games the pharma companies are paying, um, playing the uh, medical device industry is playing the exact same game. So Did they ever discuss FDA user fees? Um, I don't recall if they talked about user fees. Can you speak about that? What is okay. It? So basically, anytime a pharmaceutical company, and, and this works, you know, to a certain degree for device makers too, and 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 anyone who wants to play with the FDA, but especially, you know, for medications and medical devices, you submit to the FDA, you know, approval for the product. You know, it's different from the patent system. You know, mm-hmm. the FDA grants exclusivity for uh, medications and sort of a similar thing for devices. Though I don't really look into that stuff as much. Mm-hmm. But exclusivity from the FDA is what you really want because whether or not you have a patent for a drug doesn't mean that you can market or market it exclusively until the FDA basically says, yes, it's safe and effective. And yes, your idea is different enough from anyone else's so that you can be the only one who sells that, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, if you want FDA approval for a product to market it, and you want the FDA to look at it more quickly than they might otherwise look at it, and so that you don't have to wait as long for them to decide, you know, yay or nay, mm-hmm. you pay what's called a user fee to help speed up the profit process. Excuse me. <laughs> Freudian now, the slip reason there. this happened. The reason this happened <laughs> is that. Back in 1992, when AIDS was killing tens of thousands of people a year, all right, people were screaming, you got to do something about AIDS, right? Mm -hmm. And the pharmaceutical company said, look, we have a lot of ideas on the shelf here. 
We've applied to the FDA, but the FDA is dragging its feet. They're we're going way too slow. And then people started screaming at the FDA. And the FDA said, look, we're way under budgeted here. We're swamped with all these applications. We can only do them one at a time. We got to make sure they're safe and effective. You know, right. it's not like we can just, you know, rubber stamp everything. Right. And there was a little bit of an impasse in Congress because increasing the FDA's budget meant diverting taxpayer dollars there. Right. Mm-hmm. At times when, you know, everyone was concerned about the deficit for, you know, whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And AIDS, of course, was a controversial disease in the early 90s because it largely affected homosexuals and IV drug abusers. And you had conservative Christians jumping up and down, down saying this is God's punishment, so we shouldn't do anything about it. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. OK. So you got politics. And so a uh, clever way was devised to get around this. Pharmaceutical companies had lots of ideas and lots of money. The FDA needed money and needed to evaluate these ideas. So they said, hey, pay the FDA a little bonus, a little tip called a user fee. And that will give them enough money to direct more resources towards your idea and evaluate it. It's not a bribe, okay? We, we, we're not going to say that paying the FDA is going to cause them to approve your product, but it'll cause them to look at it faster. Right. And, you know, in a sense, it worked. I mean, this was passed in 1992. By 1995, the first protease inhibitors, inhibitors came out, which suppressed AIDS indefinitely, and people stopped dying of AIDS. It went from about 25,000 deaths a year to, you know, fewer than 1,000, mm-hmm. almost overnight. Okay. Unfortunately, if fast forward this, you know, 25 years, 26 years, 65% of the FDA's budget to oversee human drugs comes directly from the pharmaceutical companies in the form of user fees. Meaning, (sighs) for all intents and purposes, the fox is primarily responsible for paying the guard of the hen house. Right. Okay. It's pretty much... They pay for their own oversight. They're paying their own policing. Right. Right. And this has had a dramatic effect on how the FDA functions because the FDA knows how their bread is buttered. They know that as long as the user fees keep coming in, they still have jobs, all the FDA employees. And they know that by rubber stamping ideas that are at best modestly good by the studies of the drug companies and, you know, probably make very, very little difference. The drug companies uh, continue to uh, submit such ideas, knowing they can get rubber stamped and knowing they can get at least a little money for ideas that are marginally effective at best. And it's, you get this cycle because keep in mind, the pharmaceutical companies aren't doing as well as most people think they are. The fact that 87% of medications, you know, of prescriptions filled in this country are generic tells you exactly how dire their situation is. You know, I mean, it was only about 40% of prescriptions filled in 2000, less than 40% of prescriptions filled, you know, less than 20 years ago were for generic medications. The pharmaceutical companies ruled. But what most people don't know is that the total amount of revenue the 13 largest pharmaceutical companies have made has been flat, absolutely flat since 2010. 
they are a dying industry in many ways, but they're, they're kept alive or kept afloat, I should say, largely by, you know, uh, mediocre ideas, partly by mediocre ideas that the FDA rubber stamps and largely by paying huge rebates to the people who are really in charge of the medications you buy, a little known entity called the pharmacy benefit managers, which are perhaps the greatest leeches in all of healthcare. Wow. So there's a, there's quite a maze of, um, of money changing hands that definitely affects, um, affects what we, uh, as a general public get, uh, get sold essentially. Of course. If it were simple, people would figure it out yeah. and not put up with it, right? Yeah. So um, you, you've mentioned that for the average person, the the best thing that they can do just on a regular basis, if they're on medications or they're being prescribed medications, the check um, goodrx.com. Um, goodrx.com. You can also check, you know, there's there's websites, you know, in regional areas like clear health costs that will give you the cash price of many medical procedures. And you can often find you will save money on the cash price of many medical procedures by checking that over uh, what your insurance cost might be. There's another... Uh, what was that website? site? Okay, so there's two, two websites that you can check. One is called affordablescan.com. Mm-hmm. affordablescan.com and the other is called clearhealthcost.com clearhealthcost is based in new york affordable scan is based in la those are the two that i know about and there are others and sometimes you just call up a private imaging center now this is of course if you have plenty of time and you know you can pick up the phone again you can't do this if you're like you know wheeled into an er with a broken hip or whatever right. but these are among the ways you can save money And, you know, I say this because a lot of people, again, assume the insurance companies are out to save the money and out to get them the lowest cost. And not the case. (laughs) Well, you know, I'll give you a a couple of clear examples. The Wall Street Journal, okay, wrote an article back in 2016, February of 2016, you know, about the cash advantage where they did. You know, how to cut your health care bill, pay cash. It was written by Melinda Beck. And, you know, here's a comparison she did then. All right. Just a little table, an MRI of the foot. And she, you know, looks at regional medical imaging in Flint, Michigan. The self-pay rate, $379. Average insurance or the insurance rate Aetna approved for it, $445. Okay, you calling up that hospital saying how much because my MRI of the foot got you $80 off from what your insurance supposedly negotiated with them. Okay, (laughs) consulectomy at Banner Desert Medical Center in Mesa, Arizona. This was just her research. Self-pay rate, $28.58. Insurance rate, $5,442. Costs almost twice as much to go through Arizona Zona Blue Cross Blue Shield than it is to just pick up a phone and say, "Hey, how much would you charge me to get my tonsils out?" MRI of the knee, Boulder Community Hospital, Boulder, Colorado, six hundred bucks for the self-pay rate, eleven hundred bucks for Arizona Blue Cross Blue Shield. Again, there's no motivation, especially if you're on a high deductible or HSA, for them to get you a deal 
uh, when it's your money that mm. you're spending. You know, this was in one of the first newspaper articles to actually feature my website was the Los Angeles Times back in 2012 when they wrote about a woman who got a CT scan of her abdomen in a hospital in Long Beach, California. Mm-hmm. And her copay, or, you know, she was on a high deductible. So her payment for that CT scan was $2,336. How much was her the husband CT scan? <laughs> yeah. Her, her husband innocently calls up the hospital and says, what's the cash price for that CT if I don't have insurance? And they quoted him $1,054. For nothing more than a phone call, he got half the price Blue Shield of California got for that CT scan from that same hospital. Okay. They're not trying to save you money. Now, unfortunately, I mean, I'm only offering, you know, a few ways in which you can save money off of this, because between you and me, this entire system is designed to have you over a barrel. Okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, hospitals bill massive amounts. They don't even understand their own billing system, to be honest with you. Insurance companies, you know, hold all of the power. And no matter how much money you save off of your CT scan or your generic medications, you still might be, you know, end up being wheeled into an ER that's out of your network and get a $50,000 bill for, you know, $500 worth of services. Okay. There's no way they don't have you over a barrel. They're basically, their business model, okay, works on two important concepts. One Rather than covering necessary medical expenses, the majority of what they do is protect you from fictitious medical expenses. In other words, by having insurance, you at least know that most of the time you won't be exposed to most of that $50,000, you know, ER bill for, you know, a couple hours worth of ser- medical services, right? But so they protect now and you then. <laughs> from the majority of that, right. Well, yeah, I mean, if you're going to have a protection racket, you got to make sure that people feel real fear and, you know, get hit with what they're, you're protecting them from, or, you know, they're not going to, you know, run to you as much. Right. Right. Yep. You got to. Okay. So a legitimate protection racket. (laughs) Exactly. And the second thing that insurance companies do very effectively is instead of allocating scarce resources judiciously and responsibly, they bottleneck inexpensive common resources. Okay, and by bottlenecking, by serving as the gatekeeper, I mean, imagine how much money you could make if you could charge, you know, everyone in the state of California a penny for every breath they take. Right. I mean, air ought to be free. But if it weren't and you could control the supply of air, then you could be a phenomenally rich man. Right. Well, they, you know, do a lot to control the supply of very inexpensive generic medications and very inexpensive medical services that most people could normally afford if the list prices weren't so phenomenally high and if people didn't generally have the belief it's all expensive anyway, why bother? Well, that's a nice business model. Definitely makes them a lot of money. (laughs) Well, yes, and they exploit it more, more and more each year. And until laws change, everyone who gets into it will continue to find ways to exploit it and push out those who don't. So I want to I want to kind of bring this all into a, a you know tie a nice little bow on all of this, if possible. 
given everything that you know now, um, based on your research, what kind of changes would need to happen to make this system uh, treat humans better? <laughs> what needs well, to change? Well, you know, you got a $3 trillion economy, okay? And so you're not going to fix it right away any more than you could divert the Mississippi River through, you know, uh, the state of Colorado right away. I mean, a $3 trillion economy for perspective is if it were a country, it would be a GDP that's fourth or fifth in the nation somewhere between Germany and the UK. Mm-hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, you suck $1 trillion out of a $3 trillion economy, you crash the economy as a whole. You simply can't do that, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, too quickly. As much as we ought, you know, we never should have let it get this far, we have to unwind it. And mostly what you need in healthcare to fix it is transparency and accountability, okay? You have a $3 trillion economy where most of the money is moving in ways that most people can't keep track of it at all. And that just invites fraud and collusion. That just is basically saying, look, if you're not defrauding people, you're stupid because everything is happening in the dark. And, you know, everyone's walking down a dark alley with a blindfold on uh, waiting to get mugged. Right. That's healthcare in America because everything is so incredibly opaque and there's so little accountability on the financial side of it. Mm-hmm. All right. And so, you know, people say, well, single payer is going to fix it all. Single payer would make things a lot simpler. Yes. But the fact of the matter is, if everything is still opaque and, you know, relatively un- unaccountable, you're going to find a lot of people in government who are going to find ways to exploit it all. I mean, look who our president is. Okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, look who the, you know, the governor of California is the, I mean, excuse me, the governor of Florida is, you know, the guy who almost got indicted for the largest, you know, Medicare fraud scandal in U S history. All right. And so until you make the entire system system extremely transparent and make sure that, you know, there's a certain amount of accountability for all the money that's spent. It doesn't matter who's paying. People will find ways of taking advantage where they can hide. That makes that makes a lot of sense. That's definitely a key piece of the puzzle. If it's a single pair still paying a protection racket, it's, it's yeah. I mean, still you, a you, know, you could you could argue, yeah, that single pair is you know it's a little bit more it's it's more difficult to manipulate but hardly impossible it, you know a, a government run healthcare system is only as good as the government that runs it right, right right you know i mean obviously you know the corporate bureaucracy that you know is forced by stockholders by law to exploit profits as much as they can isn't ideal either mm-hmm. far from it right okay but you know your real enemy is the opacity and the lack of accountability. And this, the examples that I give you, and there are lots of them, okay, is just, you know, tip of the iceberg. Dr. Belk, um, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk about all this and share all this information and for doing all this research. I want to let you go um, so that you can get more research done. <laughs> um, is there? Well, it was nice talking to you. It was great talking to you. Um, can you let us let the listeners know where where can we find you? Where can where can we read more about this information? 
Well, truecostofhealthcare.org is my website. If you just search David Belk on Huffington Post, you can read all of my old blogs. Huffington Post no longer publishes my blogs. They don't do guest blogs anymore, but I have a bunch dating back many years, which also explain different things that go on. I made a video about three and a half years ago called The High Cost of Collusion, Why Healthcare is So Expensive in the U.S. It's about 47 minutes long, and I've learned a lot since then, but that's a good 47, you know, I think reasonably entertaining way of getting a handle on a good portion of what's going on. And uh, I suppose that's all I have for now. You'll find that if you go into my website and go under the topic of healthcare, mm-hmm. there's, oh God, like 20, 25 chapters that you can spend, you know, half your life uh, parsing through. Lots of statistics, lots of answers, a certain amount of narrative that explains everything. But you know, it's it's a huge volume of data and links that go on forever into all of the data from everywhere. You can, you know, it's it's essentially a library of healthcare costs, a very extensive one at that. Well, we will provide uh, links to your sites and uh, also to that video and some of the other resources you mentioned in the show notes. Um, thank you again for providing all those and taking the time again today. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks so much. Mm -hmm. Thank you for having me. Bye. Bye. All right, everybody, that's going to do it for this episode. I hope you found it insightful, engaging, and educational, and that it moves you to take control of your own health. If you're looking for ideas to help you move better and feel better, be sure to check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash uprighthealth for all kinds of free videos about all kinds of stuff, back pain, shoulder pain, training your butt to be stronger, all that kind of good stuff. If you're looking for a program that is more specific for something that you're dealing with, be sure to check out our do-it-yourself programs at uprighthealth.com slash DIY. And if you are looking for other episodes of the Upright Health Podcast, you can find them on Spotify, you can find them on iTunes, you can find them on our website at uprighthealth.com slash UHpod. And if you listen on iTunes, be sure to leave us a review. That really helps spread our message and gets more people to hear what we think is an important message in today's crazy modern world. Thanks so much for your support, and as always, I hope you remember that pain sucks. Life shouldn't.